Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. This is the 13th sermon in our sermon series on the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And our text this evening is Revelation chapter 8, the first 13 verses, page 1032 in your pew Bible, if you would like to follow along. Now we followed John's narrative as the Lamb breaks the first four seals of God's hidden plan for history. We've examined the four horses and riders as they gallop through the earth, summoned to judge those who oppose God's rule and oppress his church. Conquest leads a cavalry of violence in war and civil strife, famine, pestilence, and death, each one a warning of the ultimate judgment to come. And we also saw how the fifth seal revealed believers who've lived, endured, and died during the judgments of the four horsemen. They long for God's name to be vindicated and for his righteousness to be upheld. And so, seal six provides a balancing reassurance to those believers who long for that day and for believers like you and me. We are thrust forward in time to witness the cosmic quake that heralds God's ultimate advent and judgment that sweeps away everything stained by sin. We hear the ungodly in rebellion scream a question, who is able to stand? They assume that no one can survive. And as if in answer, heaven pauses so that John may receive the reply to share with you and me. Back at the throne, he sees both the protected and the triumphant church, church militant on earth, symbolically numbered and named, sealed by the living God. The other is the church triumphant in heaven. Both are gathered from countless tribes and nations and tongues who sing the victory song in which all of the third heaven join in. The focus of this comforting description of believers, sealed, dissolves into a multitude already tasting the joys of the new Jerusalem, where God will dwell with his people forever. This is our true position in Christ Jesus, one that can never be lost or shaken loose. And now in our text this evening, the seventh And the final seal is opened at last. We are once again moving in an unfolding picture of judgment toward the final and ultimate judgment of God. So in verses 1 through 5, we learn of silence and effective prayer. Silence and effective prayer. So we begin in silence. Now, it's important for us to remember that silence is a pattern we see repeated in the Old Testament. 
silence is an expectant response of the Lord's coming to judge. God Almighty is on the move. This is how the prophet Zechariah writes of it in chapter 2, verse 13 of his book. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. The prophet Zephaniah goes further in chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. In other words, seven-sealed silence is the calm before the storm. For the hard-hearted enemies of God, it is a silence of dread. But for those who dwell safely in the bosom of our Heavenly Father and the Lamb, it is a silence, rather, of eager anticipation. Now, in the still silence of the seventh seal, another ritual of the temple receives its fulfillment. It is the burning of incense before the mercy seat in the holy place, the footstool of God's throne. Here in the silence, John sees seven angels ready to sound trumpets that will unleash woes upon the earth. But before the first trumpet may sound, another angel steps forward and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Notice God both hears and answers the prayers of the martyrs who are now safe, enjoying their Sabbath rest, awaiting the ultimate fulfillment of all things. And God also hears and answers the prayers of his saints who still live on this strife-torn earth, protected and sealed, but indeed in the midst of battle, the church militant. The content of their prayers is implied in the angel's next act and the trumpet judgments that follow. They're calling still, aren't they, for a vindication of God's name and that his righteousness might fall upon those who have persecuted them. So then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. The censer that has the aroma, the prayers of all the saints is now gathered by that same angel and thrown down upon creation. Fire with blood on dry land, a burning mountain into the sea, a star burning like a torch on rivers and springs. In other words, the judgments symbolized in the cycle of trumpets come from the altar itself on which the incense of believers' prayers have been offered as God's answer to his people's plea from the midst 
of the spiritual battle you and I fight every single day. Consider this, my dear friends. Prayer is not our last resort when all else fails us, humanly speaking. But rather, notice how when the saints pray in the name of Jesus, great things happen. Tremendous things happen. Prayer is powerful and effective in this world. Because the only reason here is that God takes more notice of the prayers of his saints than he does the dictates or the raw power of governments. When the prayers of the saints ascended to God in heaven, John writes that the earth was shaken with thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake as seven angels prepared to sound seven trumpets. We are back in the Exodus, my dear friends. That is what this symbolism of thunder and lightning and earthquake means, as if God were coming to the earth again as he did on Mount Sinai. This is what our Heavenly Father is saying. By your prayers, yours, I will overthrow governments. I will confound human plans. I will turn the world upside down, casting the wicked to the ground and delivering my ransomed people. Is this not indeed what Mary sings in the Magnificat? These very points are confirmed here in Revelation. One writer describes it like this. Our prayers may make little impact to those who hear them in this world. But when they reach heaven, they are set back as reversed thunder. My dear friends, consider God's word today. The power of prayer is immense. The sequence here is is so amazing to any believer who might tremblingly and haltingly pray, not confident in what they're doing, but not realizing, of course, that this ascends to the very throne of God itself. In other words, my dear friend, your prayers, which you might think are such meager things, are integral, integral to the fall of the enemies of the Lord Jesus. Vital, essential, confirmed by flashes of lightning and sounds of thunder and earthquake that accompany the casting of fire from the altar, echoing the terrifying descent of the Lord to deliver his law on Sinai. The vision of the angel on the altar, offering the incense of our prayers in heaven's silence, links us all together as church militant and triumphant. And indeed, link the trumpet cycle with the one we have just studied in terms of the four horsemen. They're understood in tandem. The breaking of the seals reveals the scroll's contents, i.e., the four trumpets and four horsemen. The content of the scroll describes the forces that will be at work while the cycle of the trumpet judgment unfolds. In other words, 
as the horsemen roam about the four points of the earth, bringing the destruction that comes from conquest, war, pestilence, civil strife, and death. Also, at the same time, creation is diminished, both at the hand of rapacious, sinful humanity, but also because of God's warning judgment upon the earth and those hard-hearted who dwell in it. We see again this important truth. Not only are we again assured that the most threatening of powers are always bridled and controlled by the Lamb to do his will, but our prayers now we see are integral, essential to the judgment that falls. So when he brings judgment, whether the limited calamity of his releasing his controlling hand and order in providence, as creation is unleashed and starts to dissolve as each of the trumpets sound in unrestricted catastrophes that come at the end of all things. He does this so to rescue and vindicate suffering believers and in response to their prayers. When our Heavenly Father's controlling hand is pulled away at last, fully revealing his wrathful glory, only those sealed with his name, his property will greet that day with joy. Silence and effective prayer. Now the trumpets themselves in verses 6 through 12. Now it's important to notice how the trumpet visions portray limited disasters on creation. They're a bitter foretaste of the final unrestrained judgment on all who oppose God's reign at the end of the present cosmic order. Therefore, when the trumpets sound and the symbolic fire descends from the censer of the altar of God, the damage affects only one-third of each sphere of creation. It's also important for us to recall that once again we are in the Old Testament. The sound of the trumpet announces the coming of God in glorious splendor and in victory over his enemies. It is the seven trumpets used in the siege of Jericho that is in mind here that we heard in our Old Testament reading. You may recall from that reading that when Joshua led Israel into the land of promise, they immediately confront the great fortified city of Jericho led by, confronted on Jordan's west bank. So God commanded the Israelite army march around the city once a day for six days with the Ark of the Covenant and the priests sounding trumpets as they marched. Remember the covenant marking God's presence. On the seventh day, the Israelites encircled Jericho seven times, indicating completeness. And the last lap, the priests sound the trumpets, the people shouted, and the walls collapse. All of it dedicated to destruction. Jericho becomes a marker in the land. 
to stand as a desolate announcement that judgment has come on the sin of the people of that land, just as it had done in a limited warning and way on Sodom and Gomorrah. As Joshua discovered, the commander of the Lord's army led a heavenly host before the troops of Israel to overthrow the city. Just as the priests blew trumpets before the Lord's ark at Jericho, so here we shall see the seventh trumpet in chapter 11 bring the ark of God's covenant into the vision. But keeping that same theme now of the Exodus, the visions that we see here are allusions to the physical plagues that fell on Egypt in the redemption of Israel out of slavery and a judgment on Pharaoh and his authority and the authority of the false Egyptian gods. The forms of the fire that fall from the censer devastate different spheres of physical creation as with the Egyptian plagues. Both punish hardness of heart, idolatry, since each plague was a judgment against a specific Egyptian god, and the persecution of God's people. This is what God tells Moses when he sends him back to Egypt in Exodus chapter 2. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Remind you of anything? This is exactly the same pattern of prayer, intercession, and being heard at the throne that we've just examined in the text of Revelation. Here it is, foreshadowed in the Exodus plagues. The mention of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called to mind God's promise to redeem Israel that we read in our study of Abraham in Genesis 15, a promise that informs their cry for rescue. God has promised us, therefore he will deliver us. Indeed, we have said often, haven't we, as God's word has testified to us, that it's God's certain promises that must inform our prayers. So God judged Egypt in order to deliver Israel, and in doing so, God was responding to the prayers of his people. The book of Revelation is showing us the ultimate exodus, as it were. But this time, it is not a mere nation that God is judging. But the fact that God brings on the world these judgments, which so closely correspond to the plagues on Egypt, point us to the significance of a deliverance that God is accomplishing through these judgments. He is judging the hardness of heart, the idolatry of an unbelieving people, while he is delivering those of his name. As at the Exodus, when Pharaoh and Egypt refused to repent, so here the earth dwellers will refuse to repent. But as with Pharaoh and Egypt, God is crushing the strong by worldly standards 
in order to deliver the weak by worldly standards. The first trumpet, hail, fire, and blood fall on the land, which corresponds to the plague of hail and fire in Exodus 9.23. The second, a burning mountain, is thrown into the sea, and a third, a burning star that falls on rivers and springs, alludes to the plague on the Nile and the fact that no water was drinkable in Egypt. The fourth, the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars, to the plague of darkness in Exodus 10, the significant darkness that falls before the final plague of the death of the firstborn, when the angel of death roamed through Egypt, passing over the blood of lamb on lintel and doorpost to slay the firstborn of every Egyptian. We can see how their purposes are the same, can't we? Each of them reveals the hardness of heart of God's enemies and the fact that they are being punished for such hardness, which is expressed in their persistence in idolatry and in their persistence in the persecution of believers in Jesus. Consider the consequence of the last act of hardening that leads to the defeat of the Egyptians in the Red Sea, which result in God's glory. In other words, the ultimate purpose of these plague signs upon the earth was that the Lord God should be glorified. Indeed, how seriously do we think about God in his glory? If we think God is overreacting in these plagues on the earth, your view of God, frankly, is too small, isn't it? The scope of this devastation is to show us how great God is and how sovereign he is over all of creation. The fury of his wrath is meant to show us how serious God is about his word and the covenant promises that he has made to those he has redeemed. This first cycle of four trumpets and four horsemen comes to a conclusion with three woes in verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that are the three angels are about to blow. Now we saw the living creatures like the eagle at the throne in chapter four, verse seven. So this eagle is probably meant to be another connection between these judgments and God's own personal indignation against sin from the very throne itself. In other words, the judgments are not the outworking of impersonal forces, but they come from the hand of God himself. Therefore, the angel pronounces this triple woe. Remember our principle, numbers count, and the triple is the method of making a superlative in Hebrew. It's a warning of maximum intensity. Notice also that the woes are directed to those who dwell on the earth, those earth dwellers. In other words, those are the people who live for this world. Whatever their senses show them, that's all that exists. All the rest is fantasy, madness. And so they mock the people of God. These are the people who are not concerned with God or his purposes. Therefore, God will come. 
and by his coming will judge their refusal to honor him as God and give thanks for him. If you are a non-Christian, these woes are directed at you. But don't think that's unkind of God, and don't think that I'm not being nice to you by telling you this. This is actually an expression of God's mercy. Because God is giving a chance, even at this point, for you to repent of your sins, to trust in Christ, and be saved from the woes that are coming. It is as if the woe, woe, woe is repent, repent, repent. If you refuse to repent, the woes await you. This is a certainty based on the very word and promise of God. So my dear friends, let me plead with you for your own good, repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Now, if you are a Christian, consider this scenario from the perspective of the prophet Ezekiel. You may recall that Ezekiel was told that he had been appointed what? As a watchman to the house of Israel. And it was explained to him that if he warned the wicked to repent and they refused, the wicked would die for their own iniquity. But Ezekiel was also told that if he did not warn the wicked, they would pay for their own sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. My dear friend, you and I as believers stand on the watchtower. We stand watch. We know what's coming. Is there going to be blood on our hands? Are we warning the wicked? We shouldn't only warn them because we don't want to be responsible for them. But the Lord did give the reason to Ezekiel in order to motivate him to warn the wicked. So let us pray that God would cause us to love people enough to tell him, tell them the truth. Let us pray that we would have a greater vision of the beauty of God and his sovereignty and his comprehensive grace for sinners still available to them so that we might proclaim the gospel as Jesus charged us to do. The trumpet blasts in chapter 8 reveal God hallowing his name in response to your prayers, my dear friends. His people, as the holiness of God is visited upon the natural elements of this created world. This is what God does. He answers the prayers of his people by hallowing his name. And by hallowing his name, the world must be judged because sin and wickedness cannot stand in the fullness of his presence. Amen. you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the support the show link under the contact us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church simple church 
ancient truth, real people, new life.